Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Um, if you don't own a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have physical Bibles. We love giving those away. If you don't have a Bible of your very own, don't have one that you could call yours, we invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that's incredibly simple. I say it every week, but I say it every week because I never want you to ever, 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 ever forget it. All right? We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by that knowing of him. And if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, like just do the math real quick, like start reading the Bible, he'll use it for his purposes. Like, like it's kind of dumb not to be. All right, so anyways, don't have one, take that one. Titus chapter 3. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the last week of Titus. <laughs> I really hope you've enjoyed the ride because, I, I mean... Well, I've enjoyed it. No, we kicked this off all the way back in April. We slowly started walking through the book of Titus together. It took us longer than expected, but I think God is fruitful. Uh, God is faithful, and he's given us good things, and I think we're probably the better for it when we submit to his good things. All right? uh, if you're new, uh, the letter to Titus is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to uh, a protege, disciple of his, now ministry partner of his, named Titus. That's how it got an incredibly simple name. We don't do complicated here. All right? Um, and so the book of Titus is written by Paul to Titus. Uh, Paul and Titus uh, started a brand new church together uh, on the island of Crete shortly after the end of the book of Acts, about 62, 63 AD, uh, depending on when you count some things, um, early 60s AD. But Paul eventually moves on from there to go work on some other stuff, but he leaves Titus behind on Crete to kind of close out the last little bit of things that needed to be done in order to say that the church is sufficiently planted, sufficiently begun, all right? Uh, but Titus apparently struggled to get those last few things done. All right, there was a little bit of a struggle there. He hadn't raised up the leaders that Paul had instructed him to raise up before Paul left. And so instead of having good leaders in the Cretan church, what they had really was bad leaders that had risen up instead. All right, that's the scenario. They were teaching uh, some kind of works-based false gospel, which is not the gospel. Uh, and they were making a total wreck of things. And so Paul writes back to Titus this letter uh, and to kind of help remind him why he left him there in the first place and to help him sort out some of the problems that had arisen since he had been gone. Um, and so throughout the letter, Paul has shown that Paul has shown that, that, that the leaders that God calls to lead a church, a local church, they're to be men of character. Right, that's kind of his main point, that, that they are men whose life matches or is consistent with the confession of belief that comes out of their mouth. And then after that, there, there's not a whole lot else that does matter. Once you get the character and consistency piece right, all the other things are way further down the line. And I know that that feels foreign to us because we live in a culture that really prefers to elevate things like skill and charisma instead. I mean, have you seen that in, our, in the world that we live in? Both inside the church and outside the church, we swim in that ethos. In fact, we typically ignore character insufficiencies in leaders if that particular leader happens to be on our team. Now, if they're on the other team, it matters like it's the end of the world. But if they're on our team, we treat them like a feature instead of a bug. So as so what we often do is we... 
justified the, the means to whatever end we think is important, uh, whatever end we've decided the, the result needs to be, and because we've decided that it's more important than other things. And so we may believe that we live in this really idealistic culture, but I think in truth, we actually live in one of the most pragmatic cultures that's ever existed. We will, we will absolutely sell the farm if it gets to something we want. But here's the thing. When Paul gives Titus an itemized list of what to look for in potential church leaders, none of the things that I tend to think are most important in leadership or none of the things that you tend to think are most important in leadership make the cut. He doesn't go that route at all. Uh, Instead, what Paul gives us is all about character and consistency and standing up to own responsibility. That's what he calls Titus to go looking for. And the job description of an elder then flowed out of that character and to teach everybody else a right knowledge of the gospel that through both kind of word of mouth and through example of action that led to them living consistently with the gospel. And this is one of the many, many reasons why not everybody on an elder team needs to be a dynamic speaker. That tends to be what people think is most important. Public teaching, though, is only one tool an elder uses to get the discipleship job done. It's only one of their tools. There's also private teaching and discipline and setting an example of godliness. So much so that Paul actually gives a measuring stick how to tell if someone would make a good elder, if a potential elder is actually going to be the real deal. And it's, the measuring stick he gives is not, do they have an audience that's interested in hearing them speak? And it's not, have they proven their inability to lead people or systems of a certain size? No, the measuring stick is, do their lives match their witness? That's the measuring stick. Titus, you want to know if this guy's going to work out to be a leader in your local church? Are they actually walking what they're talking That's the measuring stick. And so as we've walked through this letter now, Paul's addressed good leaders. He's addressed removing bad leaders. He's applied that same logic down the line of all the people in the church so that everybody is serving and everybody is being served. Everybody is discipling and everybody is being discipled. And then last week at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul draws a clear contrast, a line of distinction between spiritual works as an attempt to try to kind of curry favor with God, draw up near to God and, and gain status with him. He draws a distinction between that and good works that he calls that flow naturally out of a heart that has already been changed by Jesus. Organically out of a heart that has already been changed by Christ. Rather than trying to merit position with God through our own man-made effort, the gospel, the biblical gospel, is that we are graciously lavished with position and status because of Jesus' merit on our behalf. And so the refrain last week, if you weren't here, is that as an elder, Titus' job, and anybody he raises up, they were responsible for consistently teaching, reminding the Cretan church of these things. Consistently teach them and show them that a relationship with Jesus changes you. It recreates you into something that looks and talks and accounts of the world the way that Jesus looks and talks and accounts of the world. But we left things in the middle of a paragraph last week. We shut it down in verse 7. You ready to, to pick it back up in verse 8? I have no other plan than this. You better, you better love it. Paul's still speaking to Titus, still informing him of his role and responsibilities as one of the leaders there. And so he says this in verse 8. 
The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. All right, so last week, Last week, we spent a little bit of our time kind of talking through the tandem posture of God's people when it comes to good works. We said last week that we are both simultaneously eager to do them and obliged to do them. Eager to do them and obliged to do them. We're obliged in the sense that it is a fundamental reality of who we now are in Christ Jesus. We have literally been created for good works, Ephesians 2.10 tells us. Right? To avoid good works is to actively rebel against what Jesus has created you to be. Right? And so it's living inconsistently with who you are. But it's far from just being some religious obligation for us. No, we're also excited to do whatever we are able to do to point everybody else back to the goodness of God. It flows naturally out of us as something that we are ecstatic about doing. And, more, and the more you've leaned on those moments, the more you've experienced that kind of dynamic, the more of a taste that you've developed for those kind of moments. It starts to become something that you can't, that can't be quenched by lesser joys. If you have no idea what I'm talking about here, it might, it might be because you've run away from those moments. If, if, if doing good work sounds like something that you need to be forced into doing, it might be because you haven't developed the taste for it. You've actively run away from moments like that, but if you have a correct understanding of the goodness and the sovereignty of God, if you have a correct understanding of the brokenness and sin-filled leanings of our own hearts and heads, and even if you have a correct understanding of who our enemy is and how he operates, then wouldn't it make a, a lot of sense, actually, that the things that God calls us to are actually the things that produce the most joy in us? ever thought through that? We may try to argue our way out of that, but is he smart enough to kind of work the system that way? And on top of that, wouldn't it also make a lot of sense that those things that we shy away from are exactly the things that our sinful hearts often get intimidated by without any good reason? Just because we're inclined against good things? And is it not also true that sometimes we refuse to trust him for no other reason but because we lost sight of his goodness. And sometimes we even believe the lie that his commands are too hard or too complicated or maybe even fundamentally wrong. I've seen myself in those places, have you? Paul says here, in the end of chapter 3, Paul says here that Titus is to be consistently reminding the church to devote themselves to these things. Insist on them, Titus. While, while the kernel of change begins in the heart that God has breathed new life into, the momentum comes from actually taking the step, trusting him and following him in what he has said is good. That's where the momentum comes from. And God will keep fueling that change. He's good like that. So taste and see that he is good. That's the invitation. Taste and see that he is good. Prophet will come, we're told. But what stands in the way of that prophet? Well, verse 9. But avoid 
foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. All right, so here we get a little bit of a taste, some insight into what the false teachers in Crete were probably teaching there. Uh, Paul's letter to Timothy has a similar list of things. And so it seems, we're, we're putting the pieces together correctly, it seems like this is a pretty consistent problem in the churches that Paul had planted and moved on from. And probably had the same groups of people and false teachers kind of moving around from place to place. All right, so like we said before, minutia of Jewish ceremonial law mixed with pagan asceticism and influences and all those kinds of stuff, right? So that's probably what's going on in Crete. Now, this verse, this verse right here, Ephesians 3.9, it has been used in some very good and profitable ways throughout the history of the church. It has also been used in some very not good and profitable ways in the history of the church. Um, just about every time there's a big public debate over some doctrinal matter, those who are on the, well, it's not really that big a deal side of things, they always whip out this verse or one like it. <laughs> well, you know, let's not get bogged down in things that are unprofitable right now. We've got so much work to do. Let's make sure we keep the main thing the main thing. That's generally the argument. A couple of problems with that logic, though. One, that argument is, in my experience, almost never used by the side holding to an established orthodox position. It's almost always argued by those seeking to undermine what has been historically held to. Um, it's only ever the revolutionaries that think that this verse applies to their current cultural moment. But secondly, and I think this is far more important, um, Paul has already clearly established who the bad guys are in this story. It's the ones who are teaching that these things listed here are what save you. That these things here, listed here, are what draw you close to a holy God rather than grace by faith purchased for you through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And so, so to automatically lump every doctrinal debate into the category of foolish controversies simply because you don't think it matters that much, it's kind of intellectually dishonest. It's a smoke and mirrors game that turns the people you disagree with into straw men that you don't actually have to take seriously. I saw some of that happen at a meeting I went to this week. It was incredibly unchristlike. Paul's not saying that other doctrinal issues don't matter. In fact, he's made it pretty clear throughout the rest of the letter of Titus that they do. Paul's not saying that other doctrinal issues don't matter. He's saying that all the man-made stuff that we try to pile on top of the gospel end up replacing the gospel. And those things distract you from anything valuable. They gain you nothing. They are unprofitable. They are worthless, he says. And just like before, Paul has incredibly clear commands to Titus about what to do in a church context whenever those who want to define themselves by these things, these non-gospel things, whenever they won't back off of those things and continue to try to teach those things, Paul tells Titus what to do in verse 10. Look at it. He says, As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. All right, show of hands. Who is ready to talk about church discipline this week? Just, is it just me? 
Am I the only one who was excited about this? Okay, fine. In case it wasn't clear, Paul just said, Paul just said that if these false teachers continued in their unrepentance to kick them out, have nothing more to do with them. And let's be honest, that's pretty much the exact opposite instinct of every good-natured person in this room right now. Right? Who am I to judge? And the answer is that it's, it's actually not you doing the judging here. The person is already self-condemned, Paul says. They're doing this to themselves. This is the second time now that Paul has addressed what to do with the false teachers in Crete. Back in chapter 1, if you remember, uh, he told Titus to silence them, to bridle them, prevent them from teaching anymore. And that was to be an immediate action. That there was no time to think that through and give them a little bit of a, a leash, let them, let them have a little bit more rope a little there. Uh, but, but why? Why, why is it, was it to be an immediate action? It was because they were actually hurting people with their false teaching. That's why. And because of that danger to other sheep, the larger church, Paul said that the rebuke needed to be sharp. It must be sharp. To be soft-handed in that moment was to actually rob the church uh, of things that they need. It was not loving to either the the ones hearing their teaching or to the false teacher because the the offender themselves needed to be woken up to something. Uh, But if you remember... We said back then when we talked about that text that the posture of that rebuke was not punitive. It was redemptive. It was not punitive. It was redemptive. The hope is that in that rebuke, the offender would wake up, they would see their error, and they would repent. But here, in chapter 3, we see the step that needed to be taken if that repentance never comes. Paul says that if they are continuing to stir up division, warn them once, warn them twice, and then cut them loose. Now, is this a shorter leash than other sins that are often addressed with the final act of church discipline? Yes, it is. Is this a much longer and patient leash than a divisive person probably deserves? Yes, it is. We're not, we're not talking about someone who's continuing to stumble in personal sin, continually repenting, but just having a, a tough go of it. No, we're talking about someone who is actively looking to harm the body of Christ by dividing it. It is a wolf in the flock kind of moment. And one of the express purposes of an elder is to guard the flock from predators. Can you imagine a shepherd just standing there with a dumb look on his face as he watched one of his sheep get torn into by a wolf? It tears in, you hear the, sh- the sheep scream, blood starts flying, hair starts flying, all the sheep are running away scared. Can you picture that? Well, you know, I was really worried about making sure the wolf felt loved in this moment. Who <laughs> are we to judge, right? That, that lack of action, that, that failure of leadership would be incredibly callous and unloving to the sheep. And so if anything, if anything at all, two warnings is actually insanely patient. It's ridiculously patient. It can only be in a trust in the care of the great shepherd, the good shepherd, that we will ever survive such a posture. It shows incredible love and long-suffering towards even those who seek division. 
So, so one of the things, one of the things that we need to take away from this, I think, is a fervent prayer for your elders, guys. <laughs> whether you're here or whether you're a visitor here and God's got you somewhere else in another church family and you're visiting today, whoever your elders are, man, pray for them. They need it. Desperately so. They, they, they desperately need a wisdom that can only ever come from God. And they desperately need a discernment and an insight that can only ever come from God. And they need to, to have a throw themselves on the grenade mentality that jumps in the moment a problem reveals itself instead of hesitating. Because if they hesitate, more sheep die. That can only ever come from God. Pray for your elders. They need it. Because you need it. So you think Titus will ever get there? Think he'll ever be successful in raising up those kind of guys? We'll look at verse 12. Paul says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. All right, so Paul left Titus in Crete to finish off some things, but that does not mean that Paul expects Titus to remain there indefinitely. All right? He is not there forever in Crete. Uh, he will be sending Titus a replacement soon. He hasn't decided who it's going to be yet. It's either going to be Artemis or Tychicus. But whoever they are, Titus is, gonna, is supposed to go see Paul whenever they show up. Where? Nicopolis. It's a port city in western Greece if you're interested. But what's interesting to me, What's interesting to me is that we get to see a little bit of a first century understanding here of a personal ministry calling. It's kind of working itself out here. Paul is, was clearly a starter entrepreneur type, right? Titus likely was too. That's probably, uh, they moved from place to place to place, starting new churches all over the place, getting them set up, and then moving on. In fact, we're told explicitly in the New Testament, explicitly in the New Testament, that Paul always wanted to go to places that Christ wasn't named yet. He wanted to build on other people's work, all right? And so that's likely why he and Titus got hooked into starting a new church on Crete. It's a place that the church hadn't been started yet, so they headed to Crete. They're starter entrepreneur types. Tychicus, we've heard of before. He's mentioned a couple of other places in the New Testament. In, in both Ephesians and Colossians, he's called a faithful minister. A faithful minister. He seems, we don't know much else about his personality, but he seems, based on what we do know about him and where we know that he goes, he seems to be more of a build-up-the-body type of leader. Now that the church has been established and has what it needs, let's get someone in there that can help them grow up a little bit. Seems to be that kind of guy. Turn brand new believers into mature and growing believers. We don't know much about Artemis. But it's likely that he's got a similar personality. And that probably is why Paul hadn't decided who to send yet. He's still working that out. If you haven't been here very long, or maybe you just haven't been paying much attention, I'm more this type of leader. I, I'm not, <laughs> I would never survive at a church plant. <laughs> it's not what God's made me good at. I, I wouldn't go well. All right? But walking into an established church and helping everyone else grow, I kind of feel right at home there. God has made me good at that part. 
Now, that likely hadn't formalized itself in the first century context, the planters versus established leaders. Like, I don't want to try to oversell that idea. But what we do see here in the text is that as early as the book of Titus, early, you know, mid to mid-60s AD, we have a pretty clear picture that some have been equipped for one type of work and others have, are kind of more equipped for a different type of work. And at the very least, Paul saw that. He recognized that, and he positioned men that he had influence over in an attempt to utilize those things for the benefit of the kingdom. And so Paul's moving the pieces around here. But there's a second thing of note we see here in verse 12. You remember at the start of the series, week one, where we talked about how there are some who uh, deny that Paul is the writer of the book of Titus? Well, here's another thing that you can add to the pile of evidence. Um, the names listed here, both here and in verse 13, they're bigger deal kind of names. So what does that tell us? Well, at the very least, it tells us that if it's not Paul writing, if it's someone else that wrote the letter and it's just been falsely attributed to Paul later on, then it would have been very unlikely that these men listed here would have been sent to the places that they were sent because you need a Pauline-type authority to send these guys to these places. If it's just some random dude, They're not showing up. If it's not Paul writing, it's probably an issue there. If, however, the writer of this letter is not Paul, but is pretending to be Paul much later, which some others have postulated, then it would have been an incredible, not only an incredible attempt at fraud, um, but like, like those people wouldn't have been around to be sent anywhere. They would have been dead and gone, and everybody would have known it the moment they received the letter. They would have understood that it was a hoax. So what it comes down to is that Pauline authorship is, genuinely speaking, the natural and logical answer to who wrote Titus. All the other attempts at an answer have to do gymnastics to kind of land where they land. They've got to do funny things with the Bible. But Artemis and Tychicus are not the only people uh, coming to Crete. We learn about two other people uh, in verse 13, people who are already there. Look at it. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and who? Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. All right, so, hey, we finally get to learn who carried the letter to Titus. Um, and the answer is absolutely fascinating to me. Just just incredible. We don't know anything about Zenus other than what we're told about here, uh, mentioned here. We're told that he's the Lord. That's cool, I guess, right? right? But we do know a ton about Apollos, right? We see his name everywhere in the, in the New Testament. He's an incredibly gifted preacher who by this point in the timeline has already been discipled very, very well and has been preaching and strengthening churches for years. He's traveling around all over the place just like Paul is. He's been traveling around for years and years strengthening churches as that second man up kind of kind of kind of posture, kind of figure. So why is any of this important? Well, most of Paul's letters are delivered by people that don't really have much of an impact on their audience. In fact, there's a number of times in Paul's letters that he has to like tell the church there, "No, no, no, you can trust these guys. I sent them. In fact, I sent them with letters of recommendation." There's several times where Paul has to ensure his audience that the people carrying the letter are legit. But in this case, 
In this case, in a letter addressing, uh, refuting false teachers in the church who had weaponized the law, Paul sends a letter with an expert of the law and one of the most gifted and recognized preachers in the New Testament church. If the false teachers in Crete want to put up a fight, it's not going to go well for them. Paul calls into the bullpen and he sends in some heavy arms here. Now, we're not sure exactly how long they get to stay. Paul says to speed them along. But there's also no such thing as calling up the travel agent and getting the next flight out of town in this world either. Best case scenario is that they're booking passage on a boat that might be leaving tomorrow, might be leaving two weeks from now, might be leaving a month from now. Not only that, but in a first century context, there's also a lot of people to greet. You don't go through town without stopping into a few houses. And each of those greetings have, have certain expectations of showing hospitality attached to them. You don't just knock on the door and say hi. No, you stay for dinner. And then you show up and pray with these people over here. And then you make sure you're at the gate at sunrise so you can meet with the elders. There's also, I'm gonna, just going to guess here, it's just speculation on my part, but there's, I'm going to guess probably a 0% chance that people found out that the great and wonderful preacher Apollos had come to town and they probably asked him to speak at a couple of functions. That would happen in our day. So while it's possible that they could have turned right around and returned to Paul, I think it's more likely that speed along means they only stayed a few weeks rather than a few months. We've got every reason to believe that Apollos and Zenos stuck around long enough to play an important role in helping Titus do what Paul is telling Titus to do. I think Titus needed the help. I think he needed the help from those two guys. Not necessarily because he's incapable of you know, raising up you know, and leading ch- the church on his own. I don't think this is in any way, shape, or form Paul not trusting Titus to do what he needs to do, and so he sends in some ringers because Titus can't get it done. No, I think it's, I think it's because they are modeling the exact principle of leadership that Paul is calling Titus to raise up. I think they're showing that off. Yes, Zenos and Apollos bring certain skill sets to the table. That's clear and undoubted. But even more than that, they are men of character and spiritual maturity who can walk alongside Titus, even if it's only for a short season. Okay, well, is that that short season enough to actually get some things done and change anything? Yeah, in this case, I think it is. In this case, I think it, it is, and for a couple of reasons. One, because it's been my experience, I don't know about you, but it's been my experience that most people who continue to follow bad leaders do so for no other reason but because they've never seen any other way. They don't know what good leadership looks like, and so they keep following the dumb ones, the bad ones. It's a self-feeding cycle. And so even just a taste of a better situation, even if it's only a brief taste, even a taste of a better situation will often wake people up to what they were missing. You ever been in a situation like that? I've been in a number of situations like that. HOA meetings especially. It's a breath of fresh air when, when you get some healthy leadership in the room and people usually go chasing after that once they've experienced some of it. There's a second reason why I think Paul, in his attempt to kind of give a little quick punch of healthy church leadership, is probably a good thing and probably 
would work. And it's because neither Apollos nor Zenos nor even Titus are the hope of the Cretan church. They are temporary servants. They are stewards aiming to play a role in what God is doing to build the Cretan church. Titus has just been charged with raising up a team of elders, men of character who will own the responsibility of leadership, who will own the responsibility of making sure everyone else in the room is growing. And some of those guys, some of those guys may very well bring helpful talents and skills to the table, maybe skill sets that help them lead well from the front, whether that's public teaching or gifts of administration, whatever. Those things... Those are good things that elders can be gifted with. And those things should be seen as a blessing by God if God chooses to bring those gifts into a church. That should be lauded in some ways. Celebrated in ways. Rewarded even in some ways according to the Bible. The problem comes whenever those things end up becoming a replacement in people's minds for the character that is required of leaders that is required of elders. It's a nice extra, but it's not necessary. Other guys on that team may not have those same skill sets. But God, according to what we've seen through this letter, but God is using them in an equally important way to build up the life and ministry and health of a church. God uses them in a different way to bring health and growth and stability and wisdom to a church. A whole host of other irreplaceable things that we don't have time to get into. And so the idea that Apollos and Zenos and even Titus himself, the idea that they wouldn't be there forever, that's not some kind of news, tragic news that would like leave the church reeling. Oh no, what are we going to do? Where are we going to turn? There's no one here to lead us. What are we going to do if Titus isn't here to handle everything? Titus is charged with raising up and establishing a team of leaders so the church doesn't need to depend on one guy anymore. It's stable. It's got a deep keel of leadership that is never overwhelmed by the occasional wave. Rough sea. So as we've been working towards that stuff ourselves here, We've been putting things into to place to, to raise up elders in our own church family. Like One of the reasons behind that, certainly not the only one, but one of the reasons behind that, big reasons, we want a deep keel. We want a stability of leadership that doesn't need me. We never want the stability of our church to be, to be dependent on one guy. That one guy may fail in sin. That one guy may get called one day to, by God to go be somewhere else. That guy may certainly has a number of blind spots and insufficiencies. And so our hope and our aim here is, is to trust that God is smarter than us and that he has actually accounted for all of the things that we need and the, the, the pitfalls that are there. He's actually accounted for those things in the design of church leadership that he's actually handed down to us in the Bible. Maybe he's covered all the angles. It's another one of those, hey, maybe his way is actually smarter and better than ours kind of moments. As we've been working on shifting those things here, I've also seen that God's timing on this has been really, really good. Um, And for our good. Uh, One of the things that really smart people, uh, 
thought to put into our policy manual a generation ago was that as the pastor here, I get a sabbatical every four years. Um, just an intentional time away and, and all those kinds of things. Uh, and, and so uh, if you're doing the math, I've been here five and a half years. That's longer than four. I know, right? Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't take it last year because COVID restrictions prevented us from doing the things that we were hoping to accomplish on such a, on, on such a time. And, and so, but now those restrictions are gone. And I can do something about that. And so uh, later this summer, my family and I are, are going to be out for several weeks in a row because I'm going to take that sabbatical. I get to say thank you for that. And I'm definitely going to say thank you after I get back. Um, but in God's providence, in his goodness to us, in his sovereignty over even our preaching calendar, that, that planned absence now lines up with us walking through this text. There are a number of reasons that a sabbatical is a good thing. The biggest and most obvious is that it's an extended period of intentional rest, right? Everybody gets that one. You take my hands off of everything, stop checking the emails and answering the phone and looking at all the different angles that I constantly look at and never stop looking at. It's an intentional moment of stepping away, all right? Another good reason is, is that I get to spend time with Katie and the kids away doing things that church calendar and church life would prevent me naturally from doing, uh, even on in vacation mode. Um, and so we, we finally get to go to this place or do that fun thing. And I, I get to tell my kids that it's because our church loves us that daddy gets to be freed up to do those things. Like, it's going to help my kids love the church more. Thank you for that. But there's also another, well, countless other good reasons. One of those, one of those is that it creates an extended period of time where the rest of the church can learn that God doesn't need me to do what he's going to do here. He's got it. He, he really does have it handled. I, I love getting to play the lead role here, but God doesn't need me. I need to learn that. We need to learn that. And one of my hopes this summer is that at, on the backside of it, we'll all understand that better. So we've got deacons right now. It's the closest thing that we've got to an elder team at the moment. They're all stepping up in different ways. Some of them are going to preach in my absence. Some of them are going to be the one who answers the phone if there's a disaster and that you know, somebody needs to answer the phone. Uh, some of them are just going to be making sure that the doors are always unlocked and the thermostat is set correctly. We do all kinds of stuff in leadership in church. Everybody's bringing different things to the table, and that, that's okay. In fact, that's not just okay. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. And, and not only will God be glorified through them, I'm also convinced that our church will be healthier on the other side of it. Because when you have a team of guys doing that stuff, whoo, look out. So I'm looking forward to what God is going to do during that time. I, I, I think we're all going to learn to love Jesus better. You can call that a win. Paul wants exactly that kind of health for the Cretan church. He wants nothing less than that. But Titus clearly has more work to do before he gets there. He's got a job to do. And we've got two more verses in this letter to look at. Verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Man, you gotta love Paul. Quintessential preacher. Even in the middle of his goodbye, he's going to squeeze his point in one last time. You know that thing I was talking about for a chapter and a half? Yeah, do that. Verse 15. 
All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Everybody in my, south, in my house says hi to everybody in your house. That's how that goes. Let everybody know that I'm thinking about them. Adios. So what we do with this stuff, right? How, how in the world can we respond to not, not just this text, but the letter to Titus, right? What do we do with God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is always the same. It's really never that complicated. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, there's not a lot that's new. We've been banging the same drum for the entire book of Titus. I'm running out of a really clever application. He is consistently good. And he is consistently wise. And his plans for us are consistently easier than we usually tend to make them. How do we follow Jesus well? How do we bring health and vitality to our church? No, we humble ourselves before the word. We raise up leaders who exemplify that humility. We help each other grow and we do what is right. Namely, good works that flow naturally out of who we now are in Christ. It's really that easy. Anything more complicated than that is really only an attempt to out-strategize the creator. To out-strategize and be smarter than God. So I think our response this week probably needs to come in the form of repenting of the nonsense and then get busy doing the things we already know to be good. We know they're good. We've seen them work. So let's go do them. He's given them to us for us, so maybe we should trust him. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time that we set aside to put action to that response. If you want somebody to talk to, I'll be down front here. What if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? Man, I'm, I'm glad you're hanging out with us today. I, I seriously am. You can respond to God's word too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. By meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that all people, by default, are separated from God relationally because of our sin. That we are owed the good and just and right punishment for that sin, death. But the Bible also teaches, clearly teaches, that God has loved the unlovely, that he has made himself known. And even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The, the eternal son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross, a Roman cross, as a substitute in your place to make payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as, as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And he now calls on you. The one who stands victoriously over the grave, king over creation. He calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. You can respond to Jesus by meeting Jesus. I'd love to be helpful to you. If you want somebody to talk to, I'm here for it. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe it's time to formally join our church family. Or maybe it's time to say yes and be obedient to Jesus' command to, to be baptized. Or maybe it's time to, to finally say yes to his calling on your life to take the gospel to somewhere far away from here. Love to set you up for success in those things as well. But whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the letter to Titus. Incredibly practical, filled with wisdom, but the problem is never knowledge. The problem is our heart and obedience. So would you help us? 
not only understand the things you call us to, but walk faithfully in the things you call us to. Not because they're complicated or overly uh, structured or any of those things, because we're fickle like that. But you are good. You are mighty to save. And you are calling people to yourself, even, even after you save them, you're continually calling us to yourself as we look more and more and more and sound more and more and more and speak more and more and more like you. God, for anybody in here who doesn't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you call men and women into your king, kingdom today for their good and for your glory? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.